Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 4th of February 2024, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, Naaman the Syrian. Uh, so Naaman, um, the story of Naaman has always been one in the Bible that I quite liked. Uh, I think it goes back to when I was a young child and I had my classic 1970s children's living Bible. Does anyone else have one of these? Wonderful, yeah, clearly the same generation, me and Ruth, that's it. Um, they had these gorgeous, albeit rather westernized, illustrations in them, uh, these Bibles. And I remember the particular one of Naaman bathing in the River Jordan. Um, as a young child, with much of the Bible that I was becoming familiar with seeming to be about people having a hard time, uh, to see that it could also feature people splashing around in water, something I loved doing as a child, uh, made this story quite appealing to me. Um, I vaguely understood it to be about a man called Naaman who had a nasty stuff on his skin, particularly his arms, uh, and he was told to go and wash in the River Jordan seven times, and then he got better. Thank you very much, God. It never occurred to me that the story of a man who effectively features in a single chapter of the Bible, really, wasn't that well known, actually, until people, Christian people, were asking me what I was going to be preaching on this Sunday, and looked blankly at me when I said, Naaman, huh, who? Uh, so just out of interest uh, to gauge where we're at today, who here knew of the story of Naaman before you just heard it then? Fantastic, not that many, cool. Um, I wonder actually, for those of you who were familiar with it, whether you knew it mainly the same amount of kind of, you know, narrative that I knew as a younger child. That Naaman had leprosy um, or some sort of skin complaint and was told by God or via someone to go and wash in the River Jordan and was healed. But of course, we just heard this story and when we look at it, there's so much more going on in it and it's such a mess. A mess of wrongful behaviours from many of the people in the story, but with at least one of them redeeming themselves and one shining example from someone of how we are supposed to be witnesses for God. I think what's really interesting, uh, revealing even, is that often the stories that we look at in this Outsiders Coming to God series of talks shine a light on the behaviour of the supposed insiders as much as anything. People who are meant to be, expected to be, faithful servants of God. People who should have remembered all that God had done for his people, and yet they act the complete opposite and are exposed in their failure by these apparent outsiders. So let's just unpack what's happening here in the story. Um, Naaman is described as being a commander in the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. Now, if anyone is confused by the description of the Lord using Naaman to give victory to the king, and yet he's still apparently an outsider, don't be. God used Naaman to defeat the Israelites, to punish them for turning away from him and worshipping other gods and idols. Naaman probably just didn't realise it at the time that he was being used by God. The other thing that you can see of Naaman from this crude illustration is that he had leprosy. Uh, now, if anyone's confused by the description of Naaman having leprosy and yet somehow still being able to command the king's army because surely weren't lepers meant to be like outcasts from society, don't be. 
Leprosy was pretty much a general term uh, in those days used to describe all manner of skin conditions. He may have had eczema, psoriasis, leprosy. We just don't know for sure. What we do know is that it was clearly a concern for uh, Naaman. Fortunately for him, there's a young Israelite girl who had been captured and forced to be a servant to Naaman's wife. And she pipes up and says, you need to go and seek out this prophet from back home who would cure him. Now, if anyone's confused as to why this poor, young, innocent girl who had been torn away from her home and forced to live as a slave to a stranger should want to do anything so compassionate and loving for the people who held her captive, don't be. You just have to go with it. Because this whole story is about people acting the way you don't expect them to. And it's through this unfolding drama that we see the work of God at hand. An immediate example is of that slave girl. Instead of beating this impudent slave girl for daring to suggest she knows how to cure her master's skin condition, Naaman listens to her and goes to tell his king. And the king says, yeah, go for it. Go to the king of Israel and take this incredibly generous gift with you and be cured. So Naaman goes to see the king of Israel, hands him a letter from his king saying, Please cure the commander of my armies of his leprosy, and by way of thanks, here's a load of dosh and some fine clothes. And what does the king of Israel do about it? He absolutely loses it. Now, if anyone is confused as to why, firstly, the king of Aram sends Naaman to the king of Israel, and secondly, why the king of Israel, upon receiving Naaman the letter he's carrying, completely goes off on one, tearing his robes and ranting and raving, don't be. It's actually perfectly understandable, kind of. The king of Aram doesn't know who the Lord God of Israel is. He assumes that the king of Israel must have some sort of special divine relationship and able to influence this prophet and can sort things out for his beloved commander. The king of Israel, on the other hand, thinks that maybe this Aramean king is mocking him some way. Is he trying to make me look stupid in front of all the other kings and rulers in this part of the world. I can't cure people. I can't bring them back to life. I'm not God. So why has he sent this man to me? Is he, is he trying to start, start some sort of war or conflict with me? Yet this Israelite king, this one who's meant to be leading the people of God, has lost his own faith in God. He doesn't even consider that God could perhaps work miracles through those who are faithful to him. All he is aware of is his own power and its limitations. Thank goodness there really was a prophet in the land, just as the slave girl said. And Elisha, for it is he, sends word to the king to have Naaman come and see him. Finally, Naaman's getting somewhere. So Naaman and his entourage make their way to Elisha's house and await this miraculous healing. You can picture the scenes. Chariots all pulling up and standing all in a formal kind of line going, come and heal me. And what do they get? Some messenger servant appears and says, uh, Naaman? Good. Uh, Elisha says you should nip down to the river Jordan and wash yourself seven times. Bye. And Naaman, having come all this way, well, it's his turn to lose it. 
Now, if anyone is confused as to why Naaman, having come all this way, no, I'm not going to do that anymore because it's getting annoying. <laughs> the problem with faith in God is that we don't have it on our terms. It doesn't exist on our terms. It's got to be on God's terms. We worship God. He doesn't worship us. He loves us so much, more than anyone could love us, more than we could ever know. But we don't take advantage of that love and abuse it, take it for granted. God is still the king of our lives. Naaman believed he would be cured, and he believed that God was powerful and mighty and could work through his prophet. But when it was all a complete anticlimax that didn't match up to his own expectations, he wasn't impressed. Furthermore, instead of Elisha coming out and laying his hands on him or praying over him or some impressive kind of like fire from heaven and a big public spectacle occurring that he could go back home and tell everyone about, he's told to go and bathe in a river that, frankly, he doesn't think is a particularly pleasant one. The rivers back home are much nicer, he says. I do wonder if, you know, nowadays, with the amount of chemicals polluting our rivers, you probably could expect the toxic water to actively dissolve any kind of skin complaint from your skin, potentially the rest of your body. <laughs> Someone's saying, wow, you look so different. Your skin is really glowing. I mean, literally glowing. But no, it's not about the cleanliness or importance of the river. It's about Naaman's need to come to faith in God. And in doing so, humble himself before God. Yeah, we compare the weakness of a king who could do nothing to help Naaman, who had lost his faith in God. We compare that with the power of God working through his faithful prophet Elisha. And that's what changes everything for Naaman. This humble act of, of faith and obedience is what brings him healing. And it changes his life. He tries to give Elisha the money and clothes that he brought as a gift. But Elisha refuses. Elisha says, I didn't do this. No, I don't deserve the reward. God, this, God did this for you. That mighty commander of an army is now a humble servant of God just like his wife's slave girl. And Naaman is so committed in this newfound faith in the one and only true God that he says to Elisha, no, please, give me some earth from this ground, the sacred place where I've you know, come to know God. And let me take it back so I can always offer sacrifices on this special ground. And please, will God forgive me for the times when I know I'll have to take part in day-to-day -day ceremonies that will take me into the temple of a false god. A mighty warrior who didn't know God. A humble slave girl whose actions change a man's life. A king who'd abandoned his faith, the faith of the people that he's supposed to lead. And a faithful prophet who doesn't seek fame or status, is just doing his job. It almost feels like a bit of a cheesy film where you've got these key characters that we're all meant to learn something from. 
be like them, not like them. Oh, watch out for them. And yet there's still one more character left to come who serves as just as important learning point for us. Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Because it wouldn't be a cheesy film if at least one person didn't get their comeuppance. Gehazi is the classic example of the person who thinks that they are fine with God, that they are right, and that their actions are perfectly allowable, justified even, because as far as they're concerned, you know, they're chosen and sanctified by God. I love, hate the way he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him, echoing Elisha's words when he refuses Naaman's plentiful gift as a thanks for being cured. And yet Gehazi's also somehow twisting it so that it's almost as if God wants him to go after Naaman and get some of that precious wealth for himself. It's as if God actually wants him to do this. It reminds me of some of those prosperity gospel preachers who say, God wants me to have nice things. When someone asks them why their congregation's donations appear to have funded their lavish lifestyle, rather than go and help the poor and needy. And as a punishment for trying to extract some of Naaman's bounteous wealth for himself, he is in turn afflicted with Naaman's skin condition. No, this servant of the prophet of God is the one who acts the worst here, in complete contrast to the servant slave girl of the foreigner. This story has such great contrasts in it. And as I was reading the passage in preparation for this talk, I just thought immediately of that other passage we had read about Jesus and the centurion and his servant, uh, which incidentally I spoke on about a year ago. Uh, if you want to go look it up on the website or YouTube, uh, sometime back in January last year. Again, we've got this outsider who is a member of the military of Israel's enemies, displaying unexpected faith that shocks and inspires. So much so, in this case for Jesus, that Jesus himself is absolutely stunned. When the centurion says to Jesus, you know, I don't deserve to have you concern yourself with my problems, but I believe you are who people are saying you are. And so I believe that with just a word, you have the power and authority to heal a really public declaration of faith, just like Naaman's very public bathing in the nasty River Jordan. And at those words, even Jesus is stunned. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Ooh, just imagine that you're accompanying Jesus at that moment. That's got to hit hard. You might think, I'm a God-fearing Jew. I obey the law meticulously. And you're telling me that this invading soldier is more faithful and deserving of God's salvation than I am. Not only does Jesus make that point, highlighting the centurion's remarkable display of faith, but he goes on to say this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I imagine Jesus is really enraging the crowd around him uh, by now. Not only claiming that this foreign officer of the hated occupying Roman forces has greater faith than anyone in Israel, but also that many will come from the ends of the earth to partake in the heavenly banquet of all of God's redeemed people. While many Israelites, who would have assumed that their place was given, will be in fact excluded. The humility shown by both the centurion and Naaman and their faithfulness and belief in a one true, almighty and powerful God shows us what it means to be truly welcomed as an insider into the family of God. When we consider outsiders coming to God as we have been in this sermon series, when we think people who we would regard as outsiders to God, do we actually expect them to change in such amazing ways? Because they can. Everyone is invited to sit at God's table for this heavenly banquet. Salvation is not a hereditary right. It's earned through faith in God, true faith. It's not about maintaining the highest standards possible in accordance with the old laws. It's about acknowledging that actually you don't deserve God's forgiveness or grace. You have no automatic right to it. You can't get it through anything you can do yourself or might have done. But by simply saying thank you to God for sending his son to die for you, to forgive your sins, and to pay the penalty that was due. There are no outsiders to God, just those who reject his offer of salvation. No one is to be excluded from our mission. The faith of Naaman and of the centurion was what mattered, not their status nor their background. But on that topic, you might well expect that this series to be all about God reaching out to those on the margins of society, the poor, the sick, the lame, the fatherless, the widowed, and some of them have been. All those people that struggle in life. You know, surely this is what we're focusing on when we think about outsiders coming to God, our part in that mission. Yet Jesus shows equal compassion to the poor, the outcast, the wealthy, the privileged. When you see the wealthy, those with high social and political status, do you see them just as much as outsiders, as those at the bottom of society? Think about who was present at Jesus' birth. Jesus was born for the likes of the shepherds, the poor, lowly, rejected, forgotten of society. And Jesus was born too for the wealthy and the wise who worshipped him at his birth. He was born for every individual person, no matter what their individual circumstances and their experiences and traits. And how are they to be reached? How did Naaman, an outsider, come to God? 
to the actions of the most insignificant person in this story initially, a humble slave girl. She'd been captured, torn away from her home and family, and yet she still had an unshakable faith in God. One that probably puts most, if not all of us, to shame. And she saw the opportunity, no matter how great the personal risk, to be a witness for God. Unlike the king of Israel, whose faith had grown cold and been replaced by other attractions, and unlike the man who purported to serve God, but who had become complacent in his faith. God can work through anyone, no matter who they are or what their circumstances. But crucially, it's so often through faithful and obedient insiders that outsiders come to God. Will you let God use you as an agent of change for that?